Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. What makes a family? What makes a family risky? In my guest Rachel Howard's fearless and deeply empathetic new novel, The Risk of Us, she tackles not only what creates kinship, but what can destroy it. Told through the lens of a childless 40-something couple who became foster parents of a young girl named Marisa, readers are taken on an emotional journey with three people struggling to connect and to find unconditional love. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Rachel Howard. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. You've written this great novel, The Risk of Us, which is, I, I mean, it, it's its incredibly gritty, uh, compelling, and and, and painful. <laughs> which, I mean, uh, but I mean, the, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really rewarding read in the sense of, I felt like, uh, the, the, I mean, the, you kind of plumb the emotional depths of the human condition through this, through this couple who is adopting a foster child. And, and through that, the, the wife, has this I mean she's got her own traumatic background and you know like many children in foster care right they get a, a little girl that has a tremendous amount of trauma and 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 there are these beautiful moments and agonizing moments throughout the book right and I mean it, it I mean it's uh it, you you bring to light a, a story that I'm sure has lived out all across the country all the time mm-hmm. yeah and that I don't think we hear that much about in this way which is why I wanted to do it because I feel that fiction can create a different kind of space than um, investigatory exposés, which I think are enormously important. And the San Francisco Chronicle did a series in 2017 of several long investigations of foster care conditions that are illuminating. Um, And I think that uh, policy advocacy is also incredibly important. But then I think there's this thing that fiction does where we're brought into a space where things that we usually want to find contradictory can be simultaneously true, that an experience can be simultaneously painful and beautiful and that people can have the best intentions and be failing and that we can suspend all of our judgments and um, create that space to really see the emotional complexity of a lived experience first because how can we find effective solutions for things if we're not first able to really see the experience without sentimentality and with all its emotional contradictions. Yeah. And I mean, I wonder if even like our terms like success or failing, do they sort of bracket things as contradictions that maybe are, or, or at least, I mean, Hegel says something like the truth is in, in, in the whole, but, but the whole means with all the particulars and the contradictions and tensions. And sometimes like when we don't bring those kind of lenses to it, like this is success, this is failure that are kind of projections to kind of make reality more discreet and neat like right i mean sometimes then you can accept the whole thing as it mm-hmm. is a little a, a little more i mean is that some of what you're getting at in the book yeah i mean i i think that's a really important truth about life it's funny i actually um i had a essay in the new york times magazine just a couple weeks ago about the season of lint in the church and um the editor that i worked with there was fabulous um but one edit he made is uh he added to a sentence 
uh, you know, entering Lent, doing this successfully requires curiosity and surrender. And I said, well, I'm okay with that edit, but I want to take out the word successfully because I don't really like the idea of success applied to spiritual experiences. And, and as you're saying, I'm, I'm suspicious of the idea of success when, when thinking in a, in a deeper way about all of our life experiences because of all the associations we bring to that word of I mean, first of all, like desire for status and like also like desire to get to the state that's like you have the gold ring and so it's over and you can be completely sure and hang on to that forever. And if there's one thing I think that that fiction can create a space for, it's the reality that life is always shifting. Our identities, our relations are always shifting. We kind of come to these resting points, these very meaningful ends of arcs. But it's always going to shift. Yeah, it's interesting to say that about Lent because you, you have this this sense like if 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 Lent in the Christian tradition is about dying, right? And I mean, how how is how is Christ redemptive by doing nothing but dying, right? So it, it's all it's funny because sometimes it becomes the season where people want to. It's almost like a, a Christian do over for New Year's. Okay, my gym membership lapsed, so like three weeks into January, I'm kind of. So I'm, it's my it's the, it's my new spiritual New Year's and and really that's the opposite like right I mean because when when you die you cease uh, actually, there's no successful or unsuccessful ways to die right you're just dead or you're not right and so like if dying is the way to live uh, yeah like these kinds of of sort of uh, metrics really seem to be deleterious to mm-hmm. spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I guess I have a very dialectical approach to spiritual life. I'm very, I'm, I'm a complete lay reader when it comes to philosophy, but I've always been drawn to it. And I had this period of going very deep with uh, Soren Kierkegaard and getting pulled into all of his idea of spiritual dialectics and the push and pull between them. And so yeah, I always think that we're between these two poles, you know, that you know life by death and death by life and you only know truth by untruth. <laughs> and so our 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 real state in life is to be hopefully moving between those poles to be constantly reawakened. Um I'm struck the the couple the the in your novel they're picking up uh their daughter their their would be daughter and she's in foster care with this woman who is at an evangelical megachurch, right? And it's very interesting to me the the difference in spirituality between the couple and and the the foster mother who's very there it's not as dialectical i mean she says something like yeah i'm not called to adoption but i got a call for these kids and it's very matter of fact and 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 and, and there's this sort of exuberant worship and 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 the little 7 year old girl even kind of likes it she's and and you and and the the wife is thinking look this is like uh so different from where I, the, 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 the wells of living water I drink from in our church, which is a much more liturgical, uh, understated kind of tradition, right? Where, where she's finding sustenance for this journey she's about to undertake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, uh, you know, it's not a simple contrast. I, I often wonder how much of it comes down to aesthetics um, in the ways that we worship. On the other hand, I have personally gone to a lot of mega churches that are in more of a prosperity gospel mode. And I worry about whether that's really helpful for people in their lives. Um, and then in this country, culturally, I think that in uh, the, the broad popular perception, 
we have moved to this place where we're only the evangelical or like, you know, allowed to claim the mantle of the truly religious in the United States. And um, it's just something that I notice and I, I stay aware of even because, um, for instance, with this novel, um, when a wonderful editorial assistant within Houghton Mifflin, um, who has been a terrific publisher, was preparing a reader's guide with questions for reading groups. And she did this beautiful, sensitive job with it, which is not not easy to prove. I'm glad I didn't have to do that work of trying to come up with questions for readers groups. But one of them was contrasting the, uh, the temporary foster mom, Auntie, in the book, who takes in lots of different girls. And she's a therapeutic home, and they're designated to stay with her, hopefully, for just a few months to a few years, but she has made it clear from the outset she's not going to adopt any of them permanently. And then as you're saying, the narrator, um, and then the church that she goes to isn't named in the book, but in my in my mind, it's an Episcopal church. And the question um, for the reader's guide was, uh, what does the reader think of uh, that auntie is much more actively religious than the narrator, and how do they practice spirituality in their in the, each in their own way? And I thought, well, wait, I really object to the wording of that question, because why is the the evangelical considered to be actively religious when someone who's practicing in, in um, these ways that aren't getting as much... Uh, they're not as demonstrative, right? They're not as sort yeah. of... They're, 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 there's, there's, there's not as much sizzle. There's a lot of steak, but there's not as much sizzle. Uh, mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm interested in, I mean, in your own... You're obviously a person of faith. Was that something that you were raised in? Or was it something that you came to, to faith later as someone who was not reared with it? Yeah, I was not reared with it, uh, except for that my grandmother went to some very vague denomination that was kind of kind of Lutheranish Baptistist, I'm not sure. Um, but my mother never took us to church. I mean, that was something that I did like three or four times in my childhood. And then I was actually really drawn to religious friends the whole time I was growing up. Um, but what, what, was it, what was it about them that that drew mm-hmm. that you were drawn to? Was it social? Was it sort were they? Was it something about their family life? Or I think it was about being countercultural. Um, I think I was growing up in a culture where I was inundated with television and malls. And I was intrigued by these quieter spaces where the secular values and everything that we're talking about with success, for instance, don't hold sway. And um, I was, and this was, this is also part of my, my own spiritual evolution, but I mean, I was really like looking at them from the outside as like, you know, one of the good people, like these people who were proclaiming values of selflessness and service to others. And the signals I got from television told me that that was odd. So I didn't know who I was yet. You know, I'm just, you're all still forming and maybe we are through all of our lives. But I just remember feeling like, can you really be one of those quote unquote good people? <laughs> am, am I one of those people? <laughs> How I don't know. And I, I didn't feel that I was. <laughs> where, where was this? Where were you, where'd you grow up? Fresno, California. Oh, so it really was. I mean, you're on the kind of West coast. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's not like the Bible belt or, or, you know, or certain parts of the Southeast. It really is a countercultural choice to practice religion, right? In certain parts of, of the West Coast or, you know, the Northeast. I suppose, I mean, Fresno is quite different from most of what non-Californians think of as California because it's the Central Valley and it's um, 
a hugely agricultural, although as it's moving away from agricultural, it's becoming, um, you know, just a, a lot of uh, consumerist sprawl. So, um, yeah, I don't know. But then I was in San Francisco. I went from uh, Fresno to Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, uh, on a lark, actually. That's kind of a story in itself, how I ended up getting out of Fresno, and then uh, landed in San Francisco. And that's where I was uh, living down the hill from Grace Cathedral, and um, at that time, a really committed atheist who was reading a lot of um, atheist existentialism and uh, with a uh, Nietzschean boyfriend. And we used to love to read Nietzsche together. And uh, that's hot. Was, that's really hot. <laughs> I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> I love Nietzsche. So I think it's great. <laughs> yeah. And and he was. Uh, well, yeah, there were a lot of ways in which our values are divergent now, but I did not know it at the time because I did not really know who I was and I was still testing out. He was older too. So it was like, okay, maybe he knows the way to be a real person in this world. His idea of reality must be uh, more trustworthy than mine. He's nine years older than I am. He's lived in Paris and London and New York. I'm from, you know, Fresno. <laughs> I'm not worldly. I'm not traveled. I didn't come from that kind of exposure. Uh, we didn't have a lot of books or magazines in my house. Um, it was not it was not that kind of culture. He was so cultured. I was so enthralled to that. So I thought, well, if he's Nietzschean, then I'm going to latch onto this even more so. But it wasn't working for me to give me my my sense of purpose and my center. And um, we were always falling out with each other. And one day I decided to just go up and walk into the cathedral. And I felt I could be there without being coerced and without needing to decide what I believed. And I just kept going back and going back. And then I got baptized. And then I had a long time of being there and kind of watching it like a performance. You know, also because like a cathedral, Episcopalian cathedral, very smells and bells, you know, very grand. Everything's like happening behind a proscenium, as it were. And maybe people aren't even really going to hear your voice if you're singing because it's such a large venue. And I was also a ballet critic at the time. So that way of like taking in beauty and meaning was was very natural to me that you sit back in the audience and this aesthetically overwhelming thing happens on the stage, but you can still be apart from it. So I went through a long time of just being there and, and, and loving it, but then not really knowing how to practice it and actually really feeling uh, atheist and uh, uh, in crisis about whether I was atheist and having secret journals where I said, I'm going to write here what is absolutely true that I believe, I do not believe God exists and feeling anguished by that, but still going back to the, the, the cathedral every week. Um, and then it was, you know, about after three years of that, that things started to shift. But I just kept going back. <laughs> well, so it was more caught than taught, would you say? I mean, like it, it, in sense of it just it, it gradually clicked. I mean, was it were there specific thinkers or books or or or, or discussions with clergy? Or was it more relational? Was it a combination of those things? That because that's a pretty. I'm always fascinated when any adult has a conversion, whether religious or political. You know, or any, like because most people don't have it. You know, I mean, most people get more settled in their in their ways you know sociology i mean there's tons of sociological data on this you know around voting patterns and th- things like that you know that most people don't have conversion experiences so i mean what could you describe like some key things mm-hmm. that were turning points yeah well there's a preacher who uh, who was the dean at that time named D- alan jones dean alan jones and he's uh an eloquent incredible preacher and he was a big part of what hooked me on the cathedral. And he was preaching 
a lot about paradox and he was drawing mostly on poets and literature and philosophy and even on atheist philosophy when when it served to prove this paradoxical point about how atheism and belief can often be sort of the mirrors of each other and, and um so uh, yeah it was slowly being drawn into that and then getting divorced <laughs> and and being on my own and really having space and to figure out who am i and then getting deeper into fiction and um trying to put myself my consciousness in a place when i was coming to the page where things are much more unsettled and judgments are being laid aside because the main thing my graduate school mentor had to say to me and this was part of my my conversion after I got divorced was you're just you're being way too judgmental why are you so judgmental upon your characters and don't you realize that's a defense mechanism and it was it was a slow process of letting that go and then is, I it, got, is it judgmentalism a form of control yes <laughs> because the characters will get away from you and, and maybe away from your conception of the world and kind of push your anxiety buttons and 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 in the vulnerable places in yourself. So it's like you, you kind of put a governor on the whole thing. Well, even worse than that, it's control over the reader, right? Ah, it's like ah, really, ah. really you're coming to the reader with this secret agenda because you're taking, even when you're writing fiction, you're taking aspects of yourself and projecting them into this independent reality, which may overlap with a lot of factuals with your own reality, but on the page is this independent reality on the page. Um, but you're projecting a lot of yourself into that. And so the judgment is this control of, okay, well, in my heart, this is really a portrait of me. And dear reader, I want you to see me as the righteous one or the victimized one or the, you know, and so, yeah. <laughs> I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught? frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe would you do something for me would you consider becoming a patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more it's for a good cause you can help this podcast and one of the many others i do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico andrew stravitz barry stewart ben crosby ben dehart carol clemens Charlotte Donlan, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show.
You know, I have this friend. He's actually is a, the podcast guest tomorrow. The interview will go live tomorrow. But his name's David Zoll. He just came out with a book called Seculosity. Uh, basically, how like you know it, it, the thesis of the book is how like we say we're not religious, but it, it, now it's food or romance or work or parenting, and these things just become the new religions. And he says, yeah, yeah. He, he uses this phrase a lot self-justification project that, that all these things become self-justification projects and mm-hmm. it sounds like you got tired of self-justifying it's that- such a dead end it's exhausting and if you're i mean i think i was lucky that i was forced to be in this period of my life where i was profoundly alone and i was just going home to myself alone every night and i also from a very young age have had an aversion to television and I've, I've not had any television in my life since I was 20. So, uh, you know, I would go home to this place where I, I had my books and things and I had my cat, but I didn't have a lot of um, escape mechanisms. And yeah, just I got it's uh, it's exhausting to try to keep up all of these projects that require so much spinning of wheels and for for what at the end of it so that you can have your pride. And it didn't it didn't when you're alone every night thinking that over, it doesn't feel meaningful enough. I'm I'm really intrigued. One of the things that it took me a little while to realize, I, I thought I had missed something as I was reading it, and I had to go back. That Sebastian and Marisa are named in the book. That's the the husband and the the seven year old foster child that they're considering adopt that they want to adopt. The narrator is not, and I'm wondering how much of that, where that comes from, how much of that is in your own story, like this, like what, like why the choice to not name the wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of choices about this book that came on really quickly. And um, the first choice, I mean, it really came to me as a voice that this woman was speaking it first to the husband and then to the child. And I actually was on my way driving down to a, a party at the San Francisco Writers Grotto for other people releasing their books. And this voice came to me and I thought, if I get this voice down within the next hour, I will have the rest of this book because the tone is and the emotional orientation is going to ride on it. If I lose it, I may not write this book. So I rushed in and and the party was starting and I went into a closet and I shut myself in there for two hours with all the party noise going on outside and just got down this voice. So um, yeah, I knew that right away and I, I really liked the effect of it because um, it's that kind of second person, right, where you're you're overhearing someone talk to an actual addressee. There's someone that this person is talking to who is not you, the reader. And so then the reader gets situated outside of being kind of an, an eavesdropper on this intimate exchange, but not part of it, but having enough space to just be curious about what's being said because they just happen to be eavesdropping. And I felt the spaciousness of that was really important. And so then I really wrote the book very carefully, line by line, um, simultaneously, slowly, and quickly, because it's a short it's a short book, but I, I wrote it in eight months, and I was just wouldn't write a lot every day. I would just feel out every line for this woman's voice. And I was pretty deep into it by the point that I realized that no one had spoken her name, and she hadn't spoken her name, and maybe that was a possibility for the book. Yeah, I, I was wondering also if, you know, it seems that generally, and this is a generalization, but we encourage men to self-differentiate more than women, right? Like, I mean, so the guy, tend, by and large, again, there are exceptions, but more often, the guy will not lose himself in, in, in the family. He'll still have a sense of identity. And even the kid, the kid doesn't know how to, like, lose themselves because you're a kid, right? But the one that will lose themselves very often is the mother, whether she's working, right? 
Mm-hmm. Or, or or staying at home as working in the context of the home it, it, it seems more often than not it's 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 the mother that loses track of who she that, that, that becomes the nameless one yeah and has that pressure too because it's like it's a it's seen as a moral imperative for a woman in a way that it's not for a man right I mean uh even just recently uh my husband uh works down the street at an architecture firm. And he uh, decided to go part-time so that I could do some more book events for a while. And uh, the automatic response from his bosses was, oh, how selfish of your wife. <laughs> how can she do this? Right, right. <laughs> you know, fortunately, my, my husband would never buy into that. But um, yeah, absolutely. And and that's definitely a pressure within the book because a part of the foster care experience that adds all this extra tension that made me feel that it was a, a story that I wanted to capture uh, is all this surveillance that's going on. You've got three people trying to come together as a family, which is fraught and intimate. You've got two people, the, the, the mom and the dad, trying to become parents, trying to like be authoritative about making choices in this child's best interest, which they're going to need to do if this bond is going to happen. And yet there's social workers, you know, calling every other day and visiting and making school visits and there's court reports and and, you know, you, you there's regulations, there's paperwork on you have to fill out. So there's all this surveillance and definitely on the mother in the situation, I think there's surveillance about how much are you giving of yourself? If this isn't working out, is it because you're not giving enough? And then often that translates into, are you still working? Do you think you're still going to have your own calling in life and your own identity? Which I think is a false dilemma, I have to say. I don't think giving more of yourself equates to that choice. And that's where the problem comes in. Yeah, it's interesting. C.S. Lewis talks about how when, I think it's in The Problem of Pain, when he talks about his two best friends, he said, you know, when Russell or when Steve died or something, I forget the guy's name is, but I thought, well, I console myself, at least I'll get more of Russell. You know, now we're a twosome. And then he's like, but I realized I got less of Russell because Mm -hmm. this shared experience. So in some sense, you have... Like you can get more of yourself, right? Like mm-hmm. it, not less when you're, you know, yeah. When you're doing something fulfilling with your life. Yeah. So you, you're it, excited to share with others and then you're being your full self and you can each bring your full self to the table. Yeah. It's interesting that the situation you described to when you talked about the observers, because if you have a kid, you have no observers, right? I mean, you could be the right. most unfit parent in the world. Even if you adopt a kid, a newborn, there's some screening. But once you get that kid, it's the same thing. Observation stops, you know, pretty early on. But in foster care, and then when you adopt, it, it, the, 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 the scrutiny is unbelievable. I mean, and, and that no other parent has to go through. Yeah, and it is. And I say this with, at the same time, I mean, this is what I have to put aside in writing fiction is, right, you just let the situation be what it is. You can't bring this advocacy angle to it. But I do hope that more people consider adopting out of foster care because for all the reality of the complications depicted, it's, 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 I think it's a very meaningful thing to do. Um, But yeah, we're talking about intense scrutiny at the beginning, and then um, a surveillance that goes on for at least six months, but you know, in most cases, more than a year. And and from multiple people who may be seeing you in different ways, that's the other thing. It's not like there's just one observer, one social worker 
Um, you have also um, court-appointed special advocates, and you don't know what their views about parenting are. We all know how difficult it is, like, that everyone has their own, right, ideas of how parenting should be. And then trying to second-guess what those ideas are and, like, four sets of eyes that are watching you is is a little (laughs) nerve-wracking. Yeah, and the other thing that I thought was so interesting is is that i mean so we know so much more about trauma now right it's it's sort of a cottage industry now we've learned so much more about how so many so much damage in the human condition is is trauma right and mm-hmm. and one of the things about trauma is it sort of it tends to make the past the present like you can't differentiate like part of being a human is having a storied existence right you can look forward with hope you can look back and retrospect and that makes you have a present when the past won't be stay the past you can't really you can't move forward. You can't do anything. And it's interesting because Marisa and the narrator are both living the story at the same time. They're both like she. The narrator has a, had a major traumatic experience from childhood with the loss of a parent, and, and there's violence, and it's and, and and you get the sense that this is carried with her. There was unhealthy relationships that that you know the trauma plays out and play. And this also happens with trauma, right? Trauma begets trauma, right? And and, and both the narrator and the the seven year old are almost, are living these parallel stories where the trauma creates more trauma, right? And and they're mere, almost mirrors for each other. I don't know. That's interesting. I mean, that was an incredibly important part of the character for me. I felt like being in this foster care situation, but also with a mother who brings her own trauma past to it, albeit one that she has looked at really closely and she feels she has learned a lot from. And yeah, now she is kind of testing that. That is being put to the test. <laughs> she has she really looked at it that closely and has she really has she really learned from does it really help her have more empathy now for someone else who's had trauma if it does help her have empathy is that empathy enough will that empathy see them through the the most difficult times when the child is having panic attacks um but i don't know if i don't I don't see the narrator as actively living, reliving her, her trauma. Maybe, yeah, maybe there's just trigger, while Marisa's may, living hers. Or maybe there's just triggers, and yeah, like I mean, because she, she, she flashes back to seeing her own, but yeah, but maybe it's, she's moved forward, and 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 the triggers don't trigger her. But like, it seems like there's she can see herself in 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 the child is maybe what that's, I mean. Yeah, that's the thing. She definitely can see herself in the child, and there's reactions, the distrust reactions that the child has, the panic attacks. Um, that might look like tantrums initially. Um, you know, and this is what we're seeing a lot of this with the kids who are being separated at the border too, which is uh, part something also that I hope people might think about with this book about not being blithe about these kinds of situations because any kind of separation from the parents, this is the kind of reaction that's going to happen. It may look like a tantrum on the surface, but it's, it's, it's a deep panic attack. And then it becomes a deep difficulty to, trust to trust another person again and she definitely um, remembers going through that herself uh, both with losing her father and then also uh, with the narrator's um, first husband in the story whom she t- pulled through a lot of panic attacks of the kind that that Marisa is now having in the story the other thing that is such a fascinating dilemma that in the story that you tell is that most parents, whether they're have a biological child or adopt a newborn in the first year of life, they fall in love with a child before the child can, can the, the, the child requires a lot of attention, but they, 
and, and you know, there's sleepless nights and, 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 and amazing caregiving, but, but you're not tortured. You don't want to quit on that child generally. Like there, there's a bond that's, you know, with Sebastian and the narrator, they're actually thinking maybe we make them, we made a mistake here. Like the, the, there's a serious consideration of, of rejecting the child, which, mm-hmm. which is just, again, I, I, like, I don't, that that's that the pain of that and the complexity of that. And again, what, what I like what you say, cause you, you express it in beautifully non-judgmental ways. Like I, I, I don't find myself judging them as they're struggling with it, which, and, and I'm sure that this is a real struggle that people in this situation have. Mm-hmm. It is. And now, uh, you know, the book draws on my own experience in, in the foster care system. It also draws on what I've seen in other foster families and um, I mean, I've seen this now with a foster family that I went to visit just last week. They uh, took in a 12-year-old child who has been through six homes at this point. One of these homes had her for more than two years. And she was told that whole time, we're going to be it. We're going to be your forever family. But they kept putting it off. Mine, you know, minor reasons, you know, just want to make sure the fit is right. And then a week before Christmas, they called a seven-day notice. That's what happens. That's what you can do in the system. You call a seven-day notice, and within seven days, they're taken out and put in another placement or maybe put in a, in a group home. Um, so uh, the, the family trying to care for this little girl now didn't want to see that happen to her. And in this situation, the hoping to adopt mom is actually a former social worker who used to be on the other side working with foster adoptions. And so she thought she had that experience to bring to it. And now they're really struggling because they have an older child in the home who won't accept the new child that they brought in. You know, they're screaming at each other. It's ugly. They can't control their older child. They can't kick their older child out. They, you know, they, they're very much like the, the situation in the novel. They had the best of intentions. They have total commitment. And you don't know you think you want to you want to judge other people. You want to say all those other earlier placements must have failed because those people weren't committed enough. And until you're in it yourself, you don't know what came up to test them. Yeah, you have this great line I love that the narrator says, I want to be connected to both of you at the same time. Why is the geometry not working? I, I, I mean, that's just that those senses are so powerful, right? And, and, and just this sense of disequilibrium and not being able to get the thing harmoniously, right? That, that, that this kind of, and, and clearly she's got a deep love for her husband. And 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 for this child, this new member of the family, and yet you know this Marisa has issues. It's harder for her with guys and men, and there's just issues that and and so it's not as though Sebastian's not a, a nurturing figure. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. the, the, the traumatic backstories, and so the the pain of watching the pain that all of this love is creating. I mean, the love is actually creating pain, right? Indifference would not would not beget this kind of pain. It's the love that's creating the pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And then uh, it's a you know human beings um, have defense mechanisms built in. They don't want to be in situations of uncertainty of uh, indefinable length. You know, <laughs> that's what you've got right there. But the reason I knew it would work as a novel is that I knew from the outset. Okay, you've got this charge situation. You've got this uh, environment in which lots of people are trying to do the right thing, but it's hard to know what the right thing is. And even if you do your best, it may or may not work. And I knew that it was going to then run through to the point where they're either going to finalize this adoption or they're not. It's going to go one way or another at some point. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that that the other thing too, that is so interesting to me is that this 
this situation that this couple finds themselves in is in many ways mirrors a different kind of transience in the broader culture with marriages, with um, employees and employers, you know, that kept, you know, we, we, like the capitalist system, you know, you got to go where we want you and, 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 and gone are the days where people can kind of count on, okay, I can, I have a long-term sort So just sense of, 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 of impermanence, right. And tenuousness, uh, permeates so much of our culture outside of the foster system, right? That, that, that there's just kind of chronic disconnection, right? I mean, people feel, it's funny because we have social media in many ways, the world mm. is more connected than ever. And yet people feel more disconnected than ever, right? And there's a kind of isolation and, and breakdowns of all sorts of relationships. I mean, in, in some ways, I think this book captures uh, in, in, a, in a very focused story, a, a less intense story that's going, uh, of a similar kind that's going on all around us in our culture. Mm. The struggle to be connected and really present with each other again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I see. I mean, I was going to say that's funny. You say that, uh, I mean, I think you're seeing the reality beneath the veneer when you're saying that there's all this yeah, tenuous, tenuousness and impermanence. Because I think that the veneer that's putting being put forth, you know, on all the pictures and Facebook and everything is just like the birthday celebration and the wedding and the beautiful honeymoon. It's like the it's just the happy ending. Boom, boom, boom. All the time, the happy ending. But then beneath that, all of us who are looking at each other's pictures know that that's not the truth. And but we're very rarely being forced to actually face that with each other now. Yeah, it's but this, these three people are forced to face it. <laughs> right, like you can't. Yeah, it, you can't curate this story on Instagram. The story of no. Sebastian Marisa <laughs> and the narrator, like you can with other, you know. It, it, but but you know, it's interesting that, that how much pain is going on that is a little more curatable. But then we look at so many like warning signs in our wider culture with addiction and just mental health struggles, you know, like uh, anxiety, like things that like that seem to indicate that, that, that the curation isn't working as well as we think it is. No. And the, the hanging on tight and, and trying to believe that, you know, and success is not working either. I mean, I think what works is, you know, the, the, the narrator of the book is influenced by both Christian and, and Buddhist philosophies, which is also true in my own life. And um, this is outside of the book, but for me, I, I think what works is uh, breathing in and breathing out and being with that moment and being with the next moment and the next and accepting that you never know which way that next moment is going to go. And I think, I mean, I, I feel that families come through, even though we're focusing on all the difficulties of this process of uh, uh, fostering to adopt, which are, which are many, <laughs> uh, uh, it, families do come through and beautiful things happen. No one can engineer it. Yeah. I mean, I think of, like, <laughs> I think, you know, the opposite of love is control. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, I think that that's so often you talked earlier about control and, and, and judgmentalism and these, and these things that, that, uh, the open handedness is hard, but that's where things can come in and out freely. But, you know, but it's the constriction, right. That's, that's so hard. And yet, the constriction, the controls that we do often when we're in these anxious, hard places, but it, it, it's, you know, the, and, and, you know, the, the, this, you know, Sebastian, the narrative, can't, they, you know, it's hard to, they're out of control. You know, there's mm-hmm. something they can't control and that, that can either push us to really awful places, you know, or, mm-hmm. 
or it can open us up to the deepest places mm-hmm. of life. And for the little girl in the story too. I mean, one thing I like is that um, that I think is true in relationships is they, you know, they come from all sides, right? Yeah. It's not just yeah. about this couple loving her enough, but she has to make some choices here as well. Yeah. And uh, she also is understandably desperate for control at this point, having been through what she went with, uh, went through before um, child protective services and the abuse there. And then the other families. And um, near the breaking point, you know, there's this surprise that uh, this girl is expressing that she'd rather be an independent contractor, even though she had all this, you know, she wanted a family and it was, I love you, I love you, I love you. When I came to this, you know, this family and I want to be with this family forever. Then when it really comes down to it, oh, this is really going to happen. Oh, but there was this control. Right. Just being an independent contractor who would just move from family to family. If doing this is going to be compromise and losing my control. And that's a hard calculation for seven, eight-year-old to make. And But unfortunately, that's uh, the position a child is, is put in. As, as well as the parents. Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a hard calculation for any of us to be vulnerable and, and, and not want to be in control, right? Because that's, uh, again, it, it, it's one of those things where despite the fact that that's where the deepest parts of life are, is it's a risk. And, and you know, that often, it's one that's often hard to take. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to make it with just anyone. I mean, there's a reason it, you know, it takes time yeah. to get to this bonding. Uh, it would be crazy to come into a family and within three months, I feel that I know these people thoroughly and here I can give up my control for the chance to bond with them. Yeah. And you know, how how long do you have to test? (laughs) That's a hard call to make. Yeah. And I wonder how much of healthy, Lewis Smeads, who is a a psychologist died. I mean, I forget, it died a decade, over a decade ago, but I I used to hear him say, I I was married. I've been married seven times to the same woman. (laughs) And what what he meant by that was like, like these marriages, there are, there are deaths and resurrections. Right. And so what families that sort of say that, are resilient tend to sort of as things change they have to let things die let lose control so that something new can live right and oftentimes when things break down is that there's not an ability to take risk because you're you know it's not just if, if it's always risk taking right in a family or community endeavor and and at the moment you stop being willing to take the risk that's where the relationship stops mm-hmm. yeah and i love that you bring up marriages because this kind of Adopting this kind of coming together as a family is very much like a marriage. And uh, that's why I found the, the narrator's position in the book interesting. Because actually some of the ways that she's reliving her trauma is she's remembering getting married. And she sees that as analogous to Marisa, this little girl, trying to decide if she's fully going to trust and give herself to this couple. I mean, sure, she she needs... She needs the the unconditional love and the safety, um, but the narrator remembers marrying because she needed unconditional love and safety and wasn't strong enough in herself, but she didn't really, she knew it wasn't the right man to marry, and she she did it anyway just for the safety. And there's this moment in the book where she feels like, if, if this little girl doesn't really love us, I don't want her to have to make the same mistake. I don't want to have her to force her love for the sake of safety. It's a... It's very much like knowing that you're you're you should marry someone. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean these and other kinds of risks are what make life challenging, but yet worth living. And uh, you've written a great book that uh, to tell telling that story, the risk of us. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for taking some time talking with me about it. Thank you so much for such a great discussion. Ah, uh, hey, the pleasure is all. 
Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Rachel for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, The Risk of Us. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.